Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org podcast, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, civics, and government for teachers, students, and citizens. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is John Moser, Professor of History and Co-Chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program here at Ashland University. Welcome to our second season of Documents in Detail, TeachingAmericanHistory.org's webinar series. In each episode, we're doing a deep dive into a single document, discussing the historical, literary, and rhetorical aspects of said document, while also analyzing its impact on American history, people, and thought. TeachingAmericanHistory.org is a project of the Ashbrook Center, a nonpartisan nonprofit organization based at Ashland University. We provide a variety of programs and resources for teachers of American history, government, and civics, all based on primary documents. In the next week, you will receive an email with a link to request a certificate of participation, as well as a link to the archived video and audio from today's program. To help us begin to think about the topics of this year's webinars, we are drawing speeches, letters, and writings from the Ashbrook Center's voluminous document database available at TAH.org. And you too can participate in the discussion by typing your questions into the chat window at the bottom of your screen at any time. Uh, I will do my best to monitor those questions and pass them along to the speakers. The subject of today's program is Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. To help discuss it, we are proud to have Dr. Jay Green, Professor of History at Covenant College, and Dr. Lucas Morell, Professor of Politics at Washington and Lee University. Jay, Lucas, uh, welcome. Glad to have you with us. Glad to be here. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you. So let me start with a very general question. Why is this, uh, why is this speech regarded as such a, a classic in American political rhetoric? Why is it uh, included in almost every document reader you can find on 20th century America? Well, the short version is that uh, next to uh, Thoreau's essay on civil disobedience, Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail gives, what is it, a 7,000-word uh, explanation of uh, how he sees the civil rights movement uh, achieving its gains through nonviolence and civil uh, disobedience. So it's, a, it's uh, unlike a speech, we're, we're used to King giving speeches. This is something that he began writing in jail, obviously, and then with the help of a few editors, actually turned it into a very coherent, uh, lucid, and systematic explanation of uh, his theory uh, nonviolence, uh, nonviolent direct action and civil disobedience. I, I don't think there's anything better that was written uh, uh, in the 20th century. All right, Jay. Uh, I think that, uh, well, for one, I, I Have a Dream uh, is currently regarded as maybe the most widely known uh, American document in American history. Uh, there was a poll conducted in 2008 that found that um, as far as recognition of the author uh, and the content of the speech and at least the title, uh, it registered at about 97% uh, recognition. So it's, um, uh, it's, it's, it's certainly the, uh, marks the most visible, uh, most widely shared of his uh, speeches uh, in the moment, uh, with the, with the Washington, it was uh, uh, kind of the high point of the March on Washington in August of 1963, and uh, televised uh, on I think all of the networks, and uh, gave maybe the widest uh, reach uh, at the moment to sort of the cause of civil rights, and uh, was being used at the time to uh, put forward not just uh, rhetoric about civil rights. Uh, but more importantly, some legislation. So in that respect, uh, all kinds of things came together, and uh, we can talk uh, in a little bit about the rhetorical power uh, of the speech, but certainly it has, uh, it, it resonates more than, it, it's more associated with King than any other speech that he gave in his life. 
That is, uh, that's fascinating what you mentioned about 97% recognition. Um, this, this coming uh, after a week in which we learned that roughly a third of millennials could not identify what the Holocaust was. Right. Uh, this, is, uh, th this, is, this is pretty impressive. Um, maybe uh, I, I could ask each of you to speak a little bit about the context for, uh, for this speech. Uh, what 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 specifically is he uh, is is uh, is King reacting to? Um, what's the importance of this historical moment? I guess I should start by correcting myself. I gave you a quick uh, opening on a different <laughs> word by King, and Jay was too polite to correct me. He allowed me to to stand corrected. I was talking about the letter from Birmingham Jail. I have a dream speech, as Jay noted, um, took place in August of 63, August 28th to be precise. And it was a march that was trying to draw attention to the lack of jobs and freedom as the button uh, that King and many of the marchers wore uh, uh, said. And it's happening during a summer where Congress is um, filibustering a civil rights bill that uh, Kennedy finally got around uh, to, to moving on. Uh, and in fact, the only photograph we have of King and X, as I know it, it uh, is a picture of them both smiling in a hallway of Congress as they were trying to listen in on uh, the debates over the Civil Rights Bill in 63 that eventually will become the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So it's happening that summer where it looks like there's no progress going to be made on civil rights the, to put more teeth into previous civil rights acts like 57 and 60. Um, so, uh, it's, uh, you know, they originally planned, as I understand it, to try to have this, uh, done actually at the Capitol steps because that's where the laws are made. But then for some reason they decided to move it to the footsteps of the Lincoln Memorial. And that's of course where, where King, uh, the springboard for King's speeches, uh, uh, echoes, uh, what Lincoln did, uh, to emancipate slaves in, uh, 1863. Jay, you care to, uh, to add anything to that? Sure. I, I think we, we, um, we live in an age where it is so common for groups to gather in Washington to march for a cause uh, that maybe we look back on this as not very significant for 250,000 people to gather. This was by far and away the greatest gathering for any single cause of, of well, of any sort. Uh, in Washington, D.C., and was kind of the first that set the standard for this going forward. Um, uh, A. Philip Randolph uh, organized the march with uh, Bayard Rustin, but the interesting thing is that they had been talking about a concerted march on Washington uh, um, for African Americans to uh, argue for the need for, for uh, desegregation uh, since the 1940s, and uh, FDR in 1941 held them off uh, by uh, issuing Executive Order 8802 that uh, desegregated the armed forces and other parts of the federal government. But the, the idea of a march on Washington was still very much in their minds. And so this was the culmination of more than 20 years of work by, by Randolph uh, and Bayard. And, and it really brought together, um, we have core. Um, we have uh, SNCC, uh, the Southern Conference on Leadership, uh, the NAACP, uh, the National Urban League, all are coming together in really what might be, uh, many, many regard this as the, the high point because so many, there were so many splinterings of the civil rights movement that, that really followed this, uh, mm -hmm. but in all kinds of ways, the, the stars aligned, uh, people came together and really uh, and then with King, sort of the high point of the uh, of the event, um, and, and as we see after after August of '63, uh, the the civil rights movement went in a lot of different directions. Sure. So this is this is really the the first major civil rights uh, uh, civil rights march, you would say. Well, in Washington. In Washington. Okay. Yeah. Well, the other thing to note is uh, most people thought that you could not gather. Uh, 50,000, let alone a quarter of a million black and white people in the same place without riots breaking out. Mm. So if, I, if I'm not mistaken, either the National Guard or the United States military was actually stationed around the city. And yeah. a lot of people were told, don't go downtown. Mm. Or, uh, if you have any business, do it some other day because we don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. 
Do you have any sense for what pop, what uh, percentage of those in the crowd were white? I do not. It was I, I it was small based on the photographs. I mean yeah. there uh, there were a lot of white uh, folks who wanted to be involved and were helping to organize. So I, I, it wasn't insignificant, uh, but it was by far and away um, majority uh, African American. Just one more point on the the, the level of concern. Uh, in Washington, D.C., that, on that day, uh, hospitals uh, forbid elective surgery uh, at the prospect of there being massive riots and the hospitals filled with uh, injured people. Uh, the Washington senators uh, delayed their game uh, by a couple of days until the, the march was safely over. And there was just a, a, genuinely a lot of anxiety because, uh, as, as Lucas said, no one had ever seen this happen before and no one was sure how it was going to come together. So that's another thing that makes the march pretty remarkable because it was a very peaceable event. Um, I assume then that the King was not the the only speaker. Did, did all the speakers that day more or less share the same message as King? Hmm. Uh, you're right. There were um, multiple speakers. I'm trying to remember how many. There were uh, at least a dozen. Uh, and, and I know they kind of... Uh, it was a late, it was an August day in Washington, and there was some concern that even though they were ahead of schedule by the time King took the podium, that uh, there was people were getting hot and people were getting restless. Um, but uh, all the speakers were male. They were that was one thing notable. They weren't all uh, African American. Um, for instance, Walter Reether, uh, labor leader, uh, was one of the speakers. Um, they there. You could see fissures within the civil rights movement, even among the speeches. Probably um, the, the most controversial speech of the day was by a young John Lewis, uh, today Congressman, Congressman Lewis from SNCC. And his speech was, uh, in its original draft, was extraordinarily strident and created a lot of worry about what would, what would be the result. So his went through several revisions, and he finally relented and uh, eased some of the language. Okay. Lucas, do you have anything more on that? Uh, no, there was. It's just as he says. Uh, there were there weren't just speeches, right? There were uh, songs sung. Mahalia Jackson, uh, the, without question, the most famous uh, black gospel singer of uh, the mid twentieth century, was there. Uh, I believe Joan Baez uh, was there. So it was not just speeches, but there were also performances. It was a long day. Okay. Well, let's uh, turn to uh, to King's rhetoric. What what do you find so striking about the the language that he uses, that King uses in this address. One of the reasons for this speech at this particular time, it was intended uh, to mark the 100th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. It came a little bit later, but, but 1963, that was very much on the minds of the marchers. And King, right off the bat, is evoking uh, 100 years before. Uh, he starts out, you know, five score years ago, and that, that language is obviously meant to evoke Gettysburg, uh, and he immediately is uh, calling on sort of the moral authority of standing at this very extraordinary spot with, uh, with Lincoln sort of at his back, uh, and, and uh, moves on to sort of uh, establish that the, the, the basis of his, of his speech is going to be uh, the legacy of emancipation, and the degree to which the legacy of emancipation uh, could be envisioned as success, bringing the success that it, it might have been hoped for at the time uh, of the Emancipation Proclamation or not. And so I, I think that part is very striking. Okay. Lucas. Yeah. Um, when I teach this speech, uh, the students pick up on two major strains Illusions or references that King makes, and one is political and the other is religious. It makes sense because you've got a preacher uh, giving a speech there. Uh, no doubt he's going to make some allusions to the Bible. Uh, but he also is keen that, you know, he's speaking in the nation's capital and speaking to a national audience, and he's going to employ rhetoric that essentially invites the American people to say yes to what they have for centuries had professed. To believe in, so it's a real moment of uh, uh, of uh, challenge, uh, but in a way that should be welcomed. I mean, essentially, 
king is preaching uh, out of America's own political hymnal. So the, presumably the principles that he uh, touches and then in broad strokes any policies he tries to draw from that, uh, he thinks he's going to or should receive a very welcome audience. After all, we've got to remind ourselves with this civil rights bill being filibustered, um, you've got to get a lot of white people to see that what uh, a black minority in America is asking for is something that they should not be able to begrudge. Uh, they're only asking for what whites have already been saying any American citizen should have. In fact, King uh, takes civil out of civil rights and uses a noun. He uses the noun citizenship to remind people this is what civil rights means. Civil rights doesn't mean what, you know, handouts to black people. Civil rights means the rights that any American citizen, regardless of race, creed, color, what, what have you, uh, is owed and what they deserve by their state government and uh, the national government. So uh, when you think about a Congress that's actually debating this bill, there are no black senators in 1963. Zero. So you need to get 50% plus one <laughs> of uh, uh, senators to agree that something that is going to be passed that helps black people is something that helps all of America. And, uh, there are, are very few blacks in, in the House of Representatives. I don't know the exact number, but let's just say it's less than half, like way less than half. So King knows in order for, to get progress legally, he has to get progress from the lawmakers, very few of whom look like him. And so he's got to speak a language that all Americans presumably have been speaking for a long time and are familiar with. Yeah. Is it fair to say then that this is a, you call this a conservative speech? Uh, well, you want to crack that one first? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I would say um, David Blight has a really wonderful book on the memory of the Civil War and the various competing narratives that had dominated the uh, he, he, he focuses on the first 50 years, but really that the, the way that this, the, the legacy of the Civil War is told multiple different ways. And I will say, uh, whether you've regarded as conservative or, or not, he, um, King was doing something here that's hard for modern years to hear. And it is uh, the, the narrative that links Lincoln with emancipation, uh, with the legacy of freeing the slaves and that the Civil War was about slavery was not something that most people um, uh, took for granted. So in all kinds of important ways, I think Lincoln, I'm sorry, I'm, I think King is giving kind of a history lesson. He's re-narrating American history in ways that would have um, probably been almost shocking to everyone except the African-Americans in the audience who really never abandoned this emancipationist uh, idea. So in that respect, it might be common for us to associate, yes, Lincoln as the great emancipator, Lincoln as the, 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 the freer of slaves. That was not what Lincoln's association with. I was reading about the, uh, the, the, the dedication of the Lincoln Memorial in 1922. Um, slavery was almost not mentioned at all. Uh, what was mentioned was the importance of reconciliation and how Lincoln was a friend of the Southern man and for King to stand up in this very spot and tell the story of American history that emphasizes first emancipation, but also the broken promises of, well, essentially the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, is, was really had to have been um, somewhat shocking. Uh, and I wouldn't necessarily call that conservative. Well, this, is, this, is, this is very interesting because, of course, not only is it 100 years since the, uh, the, since the Emancipation Proclamation, but a good part of the country would have been observing the 100 years anniversary of, of the Civil War. So I imagine there, there would have been a, uh, an, an, an outpouring of lost cause mythology about the, uh, about the Confederacy during the same period, uh, which might help to explain why uh, uh, the, the, the Confederate battle flag is making its appearance on state flags in, in, in many, parts of the, many parts of the South during these years. Uh, Lucas, do you, you care to add anything to this? Yeah, um... I think it can be it can be classified both as conservative and liberal. Uh, the liberal part uh, is the part that he closes with, uh, let freedom ring, right? Uh, so there's nothing more liberal than freedom. Uh, but the speech 
tells us what his chief touchstones are going to be. Uh, one is an American president who, in every poll, is either rated number one or number two. It's like he and he and George Washington are the K two and Mount Everest of American presidents. Uh, so it reaches back to, to Lincoln, it reaches back to the Emancipation Proclamation, but then it goes all the way back to the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. And so King is, as I say, implicitly challenging Americans to live up to what, as he puts it in another speech, we just want you to live up to what you put down on paper, right? If they'd ever said all men are created equal, or if they amended that and said all white men, or all white men descended from you know, England or Western Europe, uh, we would be having, and King would be having a very different conversation. Uh, but I think King, I think King believes he's presenting something that shouldn't be too threatening to his audience, precisely because he's holding up for them uh, the 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 mainstays of of their political life, namely the Declaration of Independence uh, and the Constitution. If Americans want to argue with King over that, uh, I think that would be a, a, a very big problem. I don't think anybody is scoring a lot of points by burning copies of the Declaration or the Constitution in 1963. Yeah. So we've got some uh, a couple of questions from uh, from our participants. Uh, this one comes from Joe Rooney. Uh, it seems to me that the most memorable part of the speech, the I Have a Dream closing, is actually the least important, important part. Uh, with the most important part being the illusion of coming to cash the check of the promise of the Declaration of Independence. Do either of you have thoughts on this? Yeah, I would agree. I think certainly the end of the speech is the most rhetorically powerful and kind of famously wasn't in, that's the part he kind of did extemporaneously, and uh, certainly the, the, the more quotable parts come from that. But I, I would agree, and I, I, I agree uh, with Lucas's take about uh, conservative to the extent that he was merely calling on uh, Congress, who was, and I think there's also something to be said, maybe that was his uh, primary audience for the speech, but Americans more broadly to merely uh, make good on these promises. But he turns um, within that, and I think this is these are other really important parts of the speech, where he is, um, I think there were some who thought King was being um, co-opted and being kind of softened uh, by his being too close to power. And in, in the paragraph where he talks about the, the hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now, this language of now had a radical tone to it. He talks about the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. That is a, uh, that's a reference even back to the project of decolonization where there was an, an eagerness on the part of of colonial powers to say, eventually in good time, you just need to be patient. And the time for patience, he was saying, uh, had, had, had run out. So there was an urgency and a more specific kind of message he was sending that um, I think the flowery language toward the end uh, is is not as, certainly not as specific or directed. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, well put, Jay. And I would just add that um, uh, the reason why King, uh, mentions not just the fierce urgency of now, um, uh, because, you know, justice delayed is justice denied, as he'd said uh, other times, but, but also he's contending against another popular uh, black figure by the name of Malcolm X. And Malcolm X uh, has a very strong appeal precisely because his language isn't, shall we say, soft, isn't conservative, uh, isn't uh, polite, if you will. His is a language of, uh, of justice. Uh, and uh, it's a language of militancy. And King recognizes, especially among the younger marchers and those uh, that he's getting to know, uh, guys like John Lewis, who are putting their lives literally on the line. Um, John Lewis is doing everything he can to keep the, the SNCC, the Southern uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, from being uh, co-opted by uh, what will become the Black Power Movement led by Stokely Carmichael, also known as Kwame Ture. Uh, this, will, this is borne out in, in the next couple of years. And so King is, in a way, trying to say, look, uh, you're better off dealing with me <laughs> than dealing with those cats over there. I mean, those cats could care less about America. Uh, they're not singing Christian songs. Uh, they're not singing We Shall uh, Overcome. Uh, they, don't, they don't have time for that. And so King has to uh, address that concern by saying, look, uh, you can avoid that extreme by adopting my, my posture, as it were. But, but there's a paragraph where he says, that we shouldn't uh, drink from the cup of bitterness and hatred, 
uh, creative protest shouldn't degenerate into physical violence. Uh, we have to meet physical force with soul force. Ng is still making the claim, and he does it till the day he dies. He's still making the claim that the if we want um, what he calls the beloved community at the end of all this, we have to be loving in our means. Our means have to be consistent with our end. And so he doesn't want, uh, especially young blacks, to grow hateful towards all whites, as it were, and hateful towards this country. Uh, he thinks that's a losing proposition. Yeah. How much of a following does Malcolm X have at this point? Oh, I can't give you gross numbers there. They're popular primarily in urban cities like Chicago, New York, L.A., um, in uh, 63, of course, is uh, the peak of Malcolm's influence. He's going to be basically run out of the organization, the Nation of Islam, uh, uh, in early 64 because of things that X knows about Elijah Muhammad, the leader, that are not quite proper. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, 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 don't, I don't know that they're, uh, even though they were big enough for the FBI to care, yeah, not big enough to overthrow this country, and that's a that's a, a understatement. Yeah, and well, a little bit later, big enough to to terrify uh, Muhammad Ali, right? Was... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, well, what, did uh, did Malcolm X have any uh, any official reaction to this speech? Did he make any kind of response? Oh yeah. Uh, he loved, and Malcolm X has, uh, has the gift of gab without question. Uh, he was a natural, also well-read, but he was a natural uh, rhetorician. Uh, he called the March on Washington the farce on Washington, uh, especially when news got out that, uh, uh, for example, John Lewis's speech had to be vetted by the White House before they uh, uh, essentially allowed it to be delivered. Uh, so, uh, I mean, X, uh, X does not believe that uh, working with whites is a solution. He doesn't believe that when he's a member of the Nation of Islam, and he doesn't believe it for the most part when he leaves the Nation of Islam. He thinks the priority has to be blacks, helping blacks, uh, coming up with their own leaders, funding their own movement. Um, he wants black solidarity before he reaches out for the popular phrase today, allies. Uh, he, he thinks there's very little, especially, in fact, he thinks there's nothing whites can offer uh, blacks in the United States, at least at the outset. Blacks have to get their act together, and they do that by, in, in fact, ignoring any of their religious affiliations, any of their political affiliations, any of their fraternal associations. He says, if you're black in this country, you are a victim of America. You're not a citizen of America. And so uh, King was, yeah, he was definitely paying attention to what's being said uh, in Washington, and he counts it. Uh, he's proud of the fact that he was, as it were, not invited. Uh, um, he was not going to be co-opted. Hmm. Okay. Uh, Jay, good care to add to that? Yeah, I think uh, another one of the more immediate uh, contexts for the, this speech uh, was in June. There was, uh, uh, there was uh, if I'm remembering right, the desegregation or the, uh, the kind of the forced desegregation of the University of Alabama, um, followed quickly by President Kennedy uh, going on national TV, laying out uh, his commitment to uh, civil rights legislation and his support for what would become the Civil Rights Act of 1964. But immediately after that was uh, that very same night uh, was the murder of Medgar Evers. And mm -hmm. I think that that uh, and that's referenced several times among the speeches that's very much on people's minds. And there's a level uh, and a rising level. And of course, immediately following the March on Washington within a month, there would be uh, uh, further bombing, you know, the bombings of the 16th Street uh, uh, Church in in Birmingham, and just a, there, there, there's, there's, un, there, there was reason for uh, uh, for anxiety and a fair degree of uh, that's that of this background that that explains the rising tide of stridency and an, an unwillingness to sort of uh, think that this that this kind of event's really going to do much of anything. Okay. Uh, Dan Farrar asks whether, I mean, how, how you would uh, go about contrasting King's speech to the, to the rhetoric of Malcolm X. I think we touched on that to a certain extent already. Um, which one resonated more with the black community at this time? Uh, well, I, that's hard to say. And I, I think it, uh, one uh, thing that I picked up in preparation for thinking about this 
uh, was the wonderful autobiography by Ann Moody, uh, Coming of Age in Mississippi. Uh, and you get really, uh, s there's been some complaints among uh, some historians of the civil rights that really too much of a focus on leaders uh, fails to recognize really what was resonating and what wasn't within the rank and file. And I'll tell you, Ann Moody was driven from Mississippi by a white pastor and his wife. Uh, and uh, she was singularly unimpressed <laughs> with King. Uh, there was nothing about it. She wasn't moved. Uh, she said, I thought we had, uh, I went there looking for leaders and I found dreamers. Mm. So uh, there, and, and I don't know that, I'm not saying that she was representative, uh, but it's, I think it would be a mistake to assume that there was, people were uh, thinking about these things with a single voice. I, I know that merely having this number of African Americans gathered in this place, uh, regardless of who was speaking, was a great source of pride and hope. Um, who, who they were specifically rooting for or identifying with, uh, I'm not so sure. Hmm. Lucas? Yeah, I would say, um, without actually, uh, I don't know if Gallup was polling this, but uh, one of the leading uh, magazines that catered to black Americans was called Jet Magazine. And in the 50s and 60s, they would poll their readers and ask, who, who speaks for you? What's, uh, who's your favorite? Who, who are you praying for at night? And uh, through the 50s, it was um, uh, Thurgood Marshall. Uh, before he was Solicitor General, before he was the first black justice uh, on the Supreme Court, he was lead counsel for uh, the Legal Defense Fund of the NAACP. And he, uh, brick by brick, uh, was attempting to dismantle segregation, at sometimes at great risk to his own life, uh, it, going from courthouse to courthouse in the South. And Thurgood Marshall in the 50s, um, blacks knew who he was even though he did his work behind closed doors, right? We didn't have cameras in, in you know, film cameras in courthouses, uh, whereas King was out in the open, something, in fact, that Thurgood Marshall kind of complained about. He said, we're doing the real work here. We're changing laws. We're, we're winning cases. And in a way, you're getting all the, you're getting all the, the pub, all the publicity. Uh, we know about King rising to the head of the Montgomery Improvement Association uh, at a very young age and leading a boycott that uh, took over a year. But that boycott came to an end, not because of a successful boycott, but because of a successful court case. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Marshall, for his own, uh, in his own opinion, didn't like the fact that King was actually uh, making uh, uh, open-air demonstrations, giving that a good name, rehabilitating uh, something that was usually associated with, as it were, the hoi polloi or the lower class. King was getting people dressed to the nines to march. These were upper-class, middle-class people like himself. Uh, and anyway, so what happens is in the early 60s, when King comes to the foreground more, when the New York Times is paying attention, uh, it, it, there is a shift, at least in the, 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 the subscribers of that magazine. It's not until uh, uh, the early 60s does King rise to the top of that pile, as it were. Uh, and in fact, you know, all, uh, you mentioned all these organizations that were a part of the March on Washington. Uh, the fact of the matter is, King was raising tons of money, not just for the STLC. Uh, he was—he really was raised. Did not a penny of it dropped into his pocket. Uh, he was raising this for for organizations all over the place. And so, um, yeah. So anyway, that's some background. Mm. Uh, one of you, I think it was you, Lucas, um, mentioned uh, that there was uh, that, that there was outrage uh, when they um, learned that that. Uh, one of the speeches had been vetted by the White House. Yeah. Uh, John Lewis's speech. Right. Uh, were all the speeches that day vetted? Was, was King's? I, I don't know. Yeah. King's was gone over, and there was a real concern, I think, among other things, not just for content, but also for time. And I know uh, that his speech was um, uh, very uh, methodically, almost every paragraph until this, he kind of breaks free at the end in this rhetorical, uh, more memorable part, uh, was specifically designed to reach a particular audience. And so um, I, I, I know it was gone through multiple times, and I do think there was, there was such concern about this uh, coming off well and no one kind of going off. Uh, and I, I guess if, if King, if it hadn't gone, if, if, if his, the last part of his speech had been less well received it might have uh, there might have been a different 
uh, uh, we might think differently of it because I, I'm not sure that it was a welcome thing to just set your script aside and go. Uh, but I, if anyone could have done it, I imagine he had the standing to. Uh, but that's my understanding. This this theme of uh, of of I have a dream today. Uh, did did this did King draw this from anything else, or is this kind of sui generis? I'm not sure about that. Jay, do you know anything about that? The actual uh, I have a dream. It's not the first time he delivered this particular speech. Right. Right. Uh, so the 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 actual words. Um, there is, uh, and we can get into this as well, the, the speech is just brimming with biblical references and uh, this very, uh, very powerful uh, line uh, about um, uh, drawing, uh, where is it? Uh, it's about the, the, the stone of hope. Um, uh, it is, uh, yeah, it says, um, with this faith, uh, it's, it's after he's in the midst of the, uh, the I have a dream portion. He goes, with this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. As best as anyone can tell, this comes from a very complicated story in the book of Daniel, uh, where Daniel is having a dream. And within that dream, this stone is hewn out of the mountain. And this, this stone that's taken up that's seemingly insignificant builds into its own massive force that takes over everything. And this... Um, it's very obscure, uh, and yet if you read it sort of with, with that context, you can't help, especially he's a preacher, right? He, he is very steeped in the biblical tradition, and this, this particular dream of Daniel seems very possibly an inspiration. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, Dan Shaner asks, uh, does, does this speech show that King agrees or disagrees with Frederick Douglass's metaphor of the country as a river featured in What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? You know, I teach that speech once a year, and comparing the country to a river does not come to my mind, so I'd have to hear uh, more about that. What's the exact question? Uh, here it is literally. Uh, does this show King agrees or disagrees with Frederick Douglass's metaphor of the country as a river from what to the slave is the 4th of July? Pretty much just as I said it. Okay. Um, I can't answer that specific um, possible illusion there, or even just, uh, he may be suggesting it's not an illusion, just does he agree with, with uh, yeah. Yeah. Dan, would you, would you mind uh, sending a, put, or putting through a message clarifying what you mean by that question? Yeah, I'll just do it briefly here. Uh, that's one of Frederick Douglass's most famous speeches delivered July 5th, 1852, uh, at a time where he just shifted his opinion about the United States Constitution. Prior, mm. to, 19, uh, prior to 1852, Douglass was a Garrisonian abolitionist who believed that the Constitution was pro-slavery. Uh, and he shifted when he started editing his, new, his own newspaper and was reading more capaciously uh, from guys like Garrett Smith and Lysander Spooner, who argued that the Constitution was actually pro-liberty. And so we see the first flowering of Douglas making that argument about the Constitution, that the Constitution could actually be a lever to emancipate slaves, not the thing that's enshrining or further entrenching slavery uh, into the American fabric. And so he has, Douglas in that speech has all praise for the founders uh, and, and only quickly elides to the fact that they own slaves. His target is his current generation. He goes after them hammer and tong. But the founders, he says, they were great men. They were heroes. They risked it all. Uh, and he sees the Constitution as, uh, uh, what does he call it? He says it's a glorious liberty document, and it contains eternal truths. And so uh, that, Frederick Douglass, I think, yes, King would agree with that Frederick Douglass. And he would also agree with the Douglass that was... Uh, uh, criticizing his current generation, people that they were who were bragging that they were descendants of Washington, uh, but they were continuing uh, to do nothing to emancipate the enslaved black man. Uh, Martin Luther King would agree with X there, or not X, with Frederick Douglass, that it's the current generation, uh, especially uh, what he criticizes in the letter from Birmingham jail is the white moderate. These are the guys that are slowing down 
progress. And these are the guys that he just assumed not uh, spend more time trying to pass legislation rather than just showing up in speeches. Okay. Uh, Donnie asks, uh, so given what Lucas has stated, he, he, uh, King, I, I think he's, he means here, may have been riding on the backs of others. Uh, do you think this could be that he was charismatic and very eloquent speaker that he was in the limelight? I, I'm, I'm not sure I understand the question. I've uh, asked for, for, for clarification here. Uh, I, I mean, let, let, let's ask this. Is, to what extent is King riding on the backs of those who came before him? Well, another thing to bear in mind about King that's easy to forget um, is that he's still in his early 30s. Mm. Uh, he's, he's, he's a young man. He was a young man when he died. So uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't say he wasn't capable of original thought or that he was not in himself uh, a, a, a genuinely insightful, and, and he was, a, a, I think, a bona fide intellectual. Uh, but I also think he was uh, in, incredibly... Uh, one of his keys was he was bringing together a tremendous, uh, a wide variety of different um, uh, figures. I, I think one of, the, one of the, I'm not sure you can understand this speech without uh, understanding Gandhi. Uh, Gandhi's legacy and his influence, and he was very candid about that uh, in terms of uh, not just his strategy of non-biased violence, but some of the, uh, some of the philosophical underpinnings of non-violence, and he saw uh, as its effect. And King had uh, not just what, what did, this doesn't just resonate with him intellectually, but he had seen how it had worked out way back to the Salt March. In fact, uh, there was a thought that the wa March on Washington should be uh, a, a, a march from Birmingham to Washington that was much more like uh, the Salt March that was going to be drawing that kind of attention. Uh, so he was, uh, I think he was relatively generous in his acknowledgement of some of the influences that others had had on him. But he also needs to be given credit for, for tailoring it to, to, to his own time. Okay. Lucas. Yeah, I would only add that uh, I think that's, I think that's uh, all true. Um, uh, he, like many a preacher, like many a speaker, um, would also borrow from other preachers. Um, and I, don't, I can't cite chapter and verse here, but those who dig a little deeper on this matter, and there have been a lot of books written about this one speech, let alone about uh, King's life uh, that have made those connections where they you can look at some other in particular other uh, black preachers that King was familiar with uh, certain locutions that they used that King would borrow um, and so uh, uh, Ralph Ellison once said writers write from other writers so King uh, he, he speaks from other speakers so uh, it would not surprise me that there are particular um, phrases uh, in or even cadences in this speech that he borrowed from uh, from other preachers and speakers. Okay. Um, maybe we could talk a little bit about the, uh, the the how this speech was received in the aftermath. Uh, it, it, did did this speech move the needle, as they say? Well. Um, the, a great tragedy happened after this speech is uh, the bombing of that of the church where the four girls uh, uh, were attending Sunday school died. Uh, that happened in early September, if I remember correctly. So if it moved uh, at least one needle that it moved, it moved uh, a needle of, of the, the extremist element in this country, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was a... Uh there was a major gathering of the Ku Klux Klan just days after this on Stone Mountain, of course, which is referenced in the speech. Uh, and, of course, the Klan was already in its sort of third major iteration, having to do with the ascendancy of the Civil Rights Movement and the anniversary, as John mentioned, of the Civil War. Uh, but I, I, and, and, and also sort of the, the, uh, the, the growing uh, sense that there was a profound violation of, of civil rights, which of course he mentions pretty directly uh, in, in his uh, talk of uh, the, the lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification from, of course, uh, George Wallace. So uh, I, I think um, I think Lucas is probably right in terms of moving the needle. Uh, I think uh, it, it 
uh, I don't know if the speech did this, but the, the, the march did and some of these events that were that, that followed from it uh, witnessed a splintering of the of, of the civil rights movement and a real uh, strong uh, counter uh, counterattack. Now, in, uh, whether anyone was persuaded by the march uh, or the um, uh, or, or the speech to actually move on the legislation, it's hard to say because, of course, the legislation comes. Many feel uh, as as a uh, as, as Johnson's uh, need to sort of do this in, in memory of, of what would be a slain uh, President Kennedy, which would also happen later the same year, uh, only a few months later. So uh, it, it's hard. There's so many other factors. It's hard to know whether uh, the march in general, the speech in particular, uh, did anything. Uh, how how did white America receive the speech? For instance, how did the how did the what did the press think about it? Yikes! I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, I did read some. I did read somewhere that um, there were some. Maybe the New York Times was one that, um, in terms of all the speeches of the day, they not only picked up on the fact that King's was the most memorable, but they picked up on the "I Have a Dream." Pretty quickly, that that was going to be the thing that that retained. Mm. Not all, uh, not all newspapers did. Uh, uh, there was one uh, report that I read that indicated that uh, King was not even mentioned <laughs> uh, uh, when the event what uh, was reported on. So the speech is so singular in our imagination; it's hard to imagine that anything else happened that day. Uh, but. Uh, and, and again, that's not to say that it, it, it was people weren't moved by it. I know, I know Kennedy himself um, was thrilled by it. One of the things uh, the, the the participants in the in the um, march uh, or up on the stage uh, pretty directly went from there to the White House for a reception, and Kennedy was uh, visibly moved and talked about. Uh, I think he said a hell of a speech, uh, and and was was struck by. Uh, Kennedy himself was struck by the powerful uh, rhetoric. So, uh, yeah. uh, uh, Larry Fata asked a question a little while ago about the the, the personal relationship between uh, uh, King and Malcolm X. Uh, was there a was there a, a mutual respect or mutual animosity? Um, what little I know about that is there was some correspondence between them. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, and, uh, it wouldn't be, I mean, there was no room in King's heart for, for, uh, animosity towards, uh, anyone, I don't think. Uh, and, and, and I would say not for, for Malcolm either. Um, the, the few letters that I've read, uh, were very cordial, uh, between them, but, uh, King, uh, like X was a busy man and it wasn't, as I said, as far as I know, they only met in person one time, mm. uh, that, that summer of '63 to uh, to listen in on on the debates over the civil rights bill, uh, but they were both you know uh, operating on separate tracks. Especially given the fact that as long as Malcolm X was the the spokesman for the Nation of Islam, which was arguing for as as much practicable separation from white people as possible, uh, because they actually thought that uh, judgment from God was going to be visited upon. Uh, whites, and so, you know, like, uh, do whatever you can not to, to mix with whites, and not just even don't marry, it's, you know, don't shop in their stores, don't go to their schools, uh, in some cases don't even speak their language, right? They spoke Arabic and taught their children <laughs> Arabic. Um, they were they were never considered an, an orthodox sect of Islam, as any, uh, as any Muslim will tell you. Um, Elijah Muhammad has a, has a very very much a balderized uh, version of, of Islam, uh, which I think uh, bothered Malcolm. I think Malcolm knew even before he left the, the Nation of Islam that uh, he, he wanted something that was more traditional uh, Islam, and he actually converted to Sunni, uh, to become a Sunni, Sunni Muslim when he left uh, the Nation of Islam. But back to your question, um, I, I don't know that the communication was very often, and they never made a point of, of uh, meeting up with each other. Jay, can you add anything to that? Uh, I, I think, uh, I'm sure I'll defer to uh, Lucas's sense of, of this. Well, one thing I have read is that uh, I think that the contrast between their 
their views and their concerns and really their, their heart impulses sometimes over overdone. And uh, they shared a tremendous amount in common. And uh, just going back to those two really interesting uh, paragraphs, one where uh, King is emphasizing uh, that, in fact, he hasn't been co-opted and they're not uh, – haven't been taken in by the, the, the tranquilizing drug of, of gradualism, contrasted with the later one where he's uh, like pushing back against probably the, the, the militancy he saw rising uh, in the likes of, of Malcolm X. Um, in, in the midst of that, he really does offer what seems to me uh, about the sternest and the most, uh, and, and maybe the most moving part uh, of the speech where he says, there will neither, um, and, and those who hope that the Negro needed to blow off steam and will now be content will have a rude awakening mm. if the nation returns to business as usual. So he, there's a sense in which he understands and is sympathetic to those who have had it, and, uh, and, and he continues on, uh, there will neither be rest nor tranquility in America until the Negro is granted the citizenship rights. The whirlwinds of re re revolt will continue to shake the foundations of our nation until the bright day of justice emerges. So this is a strong language. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering if maybe we could bring Marcus Garvey's uh, appeal to the soul of white America into this very briefly. What could... What what does uh, does does bringing this uh, this document in help us uh, to illuminate either about about King's uh, speech or uh, or or Malcolm X's? Well, it's a uh, it's there is the similarity. Um, both King and Garvey, I would argue, are appealing to the nation's conscience. Right, it's a word that Garvey repeats. Uh, in his uh, editorial, uh, and it's clearly what King is doing, giving a talk at the nation's capital on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. He's appealing to uh, the good-heartedness of America. King would not be hopeful uh, uh, if it was the case that the vast majority of white Americans hated black people. Uh, it, that, that would be, again, we would be having a completely different conversation. Uh, and so uh, on the one hand, both Garvey and King um, to, pro to promote progress for blacks, recognize a need to appeal to the conscience of white Americans. The difference, the massive difference, the obvious difference, of course, is where they're headed. Garvey thinks racial prejudice in the United States is so bad that there is no hope for black Americans in America, uh, especially for the best of black Americans. And in this case, he echoes uh, statements by W.E.B. Du Bois. Uh, on, on that subject. And so uh, it, it, for, for both Du Bois and for Garvey, because prejudice is so pervasive, uh, they uh, have to come up with uh, a racial separatist means to accomplish a particular end. For Garvey, it, the best of all worlds is, or, or you know, if whites aren't going to change their minds about uh, being bigots, then they should at least uh, not take for granted all these years that blacks have helped build, uh, helped build the United States. And if you're not going to let them reap those fruit, uh, re reap that fruit, then at least help them find a nation of their own somewhere else. And of course, for Garvey, that's uh, what he considers the motherland, right? Back to Africa. Yeah. Whereas King, King definitely sees the future. He's hopeful for the future, and his his future is an integrated future. The beloved community is is black and white together, uh, and. Uh, uh, Garvey is, is willing to take help from whites, but he's not willing to build a future with whites. Hmm. Jay, anything to add to that? Yeah, I, uh, I think that uh, it, it is really striking for, to, to, to read Garvey's uh, strong uh, language opposing uh, the, the doctrine of social equality yeah. uh, as something that seems uh, absolutely ludicrous. Um, I will say, and, and this doesn't come out as much in the I Have a Dream speech, but I think King had learned to be sensitive uh, in 1963 not to overplay talk of social equality. I think that he made a comment. He, he was at an earlier time before he had, uh, now I think he may have had some, uh, some white girlfriends sort of on the side, but he was persuaded to not, this wasn't going to be good for his cause to, uh, today, so we're looking to be brothers, not brothers-in-law, with white men. 
which I thought was kind of a, a kind, of, kind of a jarring thing. So even though implicitly he's very much advocating for a kind of political uh, equality, there was an acknowledgement that he didn't want to push uh, push this too far. So that that would be some similarities. But in terms of his uh, his his aims uh, and the, and his means, uh, they're really strikingly different, uh, which speaks to the difference between the 1920s and well, John Juan Daniels uh, gives us, I think, the perfect question to close on. Uh, he asks, looking today at the current racial climate, the Starbucks incident, for a recent example, can it be said that King's dream has yet to be realized? I'll let you take a crack at that first, Jim. <laughs> uh, I, think, uh, I think so. Of course, um, it's it's hard to uh, live in sort of the current state of seemingly uh, rising animosity. Uh, I mean, King very specifically addresses police brutality in this speech, and this is an issue that is as relevant, uh, if not more relevant, than it was when he wrote it in 1963. So I think um, there was a there was a uh, poll taken, I think, maybe it's right around the same one in 2008, and uh, they lifted a lot of different options about, do, do you think that the, the dream has been fulfilled? And an equal number of people said it absolutely has and it absolutely has not. It was 1% each. So Americans broadly uh, acknowledge, uh, and there was some debate, you know, when Barack Obama was elected president in 2008, there was a lot of talk the dream was fulfilled. Um, I think that that was um, uh, maybe not exactly, uh, if you read the speech, uh, not, not that King would have thought that was a bad thing, uh, but, but exactly what he had in mind. Hmm. Lucas? Yeah, I would add that as long as we're still, um, I mean, we still have affirmative action, so that means in terms of government policy, we're still teaching citizens to pay attention to race, even though we're, the claim is that we're, we're paying attention to race to help, not to harm, uh, but that, of course that's a debatable proposition. Uh, with the emphasis on identity on campuses and talks, you know, talking about microaggressions and safe spaces and where can, uh, you know, can or is it allowable for people of color on campus to have a space where whites aren't allowed uh, uh, at certain times of the day, uh, at a time when uh, we're emphasizing. Uh, what some people would call multiculturalism, it seems that uh, adopting policies that are expressly teaching people that race matters, um, by, that that's the most important part of who you are, not your religion, not your politics, but your race. In that sense, uh, um, uh, to that extent, we're, we're children of Malcolm X and we're children of the Black Power Movement where they said race is the most important thing uh, to think about. Uh, and so we haven't, I think, uh, I don't think at least this portion of, of King's dream has come, uh, uh, has become reality simply because we haven't taken seriously enough, you know, the most famous line next to Let Freedom Ring uh, uh, of the speech, which was, right, where they will, to live in a country where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. The problem, though, is if you study King not just this king, but the king in his later years, in fact, beginning in the, ver the very next year, um, where he published a book called Chaos or Community, King starts making a lot, he places a much greater emphasis on um, skin <laughs> than he does on character, ironically enough. Uh, near the end of his life, uh, he wants people to think about blacks as victims. He wants people to think about blacks, uh, that the most important thing to know about blacks is they suffer. And that's a very different message than I think we see in King here saying we need to pay attention to people's character and trust that uh, uh, teaching that to our children um, is the most important way for us to move past uh, the color line to a place where we can see race, but race won't matter. Hmm. Well, we're going to have to have that be the last word. Uh, I want to thank both of our panelists, Jay and Lucas, as well as all of you participants for your questions. Thank you. I was, sorry, just a reminder about that you will be receiving an email uh, with a link for a certificate of participation. Watch for that in your inbox.
If you have enjoyed today's webinar, please consider taking an online graduate course through the Ashbrook Center. These are also offered as part of our Master of Arts in American History and Government program. Uh, both Jay and Lucas regularly teach in that program. Uh, you can find more information about Ashbrook's online course offerings at teachingamericanhistory.org. And you can help us spread the word about these programs by sharing the archive link that you will be receiving by email next week. Please share that with your colleagues as well as on social media. Our next Documents in Detail webinar will be held on Wednesday, May 16th. I should let you know this will be our final webinar of the 2017-18 season. Uh, after that, we will take a hiatus for a couple of months and return in, uh, in late August. Uh, our subject on May 16th will be Ronald Reagan's speech, A Time for Choosing. And at that time, I'll be joined by Dr. Stephen Knott of the United States Naval War College and Dr. Gregory Schneider of Emporia State University. The recommended readings for that webinar have been posted. So we hope to see you all back here on May 16th. Thanks again and have a wonderful evening. Finally, if you're listening to this podcast through iTunes, if you would take the time to give us a five-star rating and some other feedback on iTunes, that would help us show up in people's search results and would uh, help us spread the word about our content, our resources, and our programs. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs, as well as information about future programs, at TAH.org webinars, or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.